بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الحدي حدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So Shaykh Abu Rija Hafidhu Allah He gave you He gave us a reminder in which he spoke about The honor That was bestowed upon the companions Radiyallahu anhum With Islam With Tawheed with the guidance of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and this uh, guidance raised them from the lowly position that they were in and even though as you heard in the statement from Umar bin al-Khattab that we used to be a lowly nation he said that speech but that does not mean at the same time that these companions did not have some degree of nobility and noble manners because even though they were in jahiliyyah even though they were in darkness because of the absence of revelation they still had some qualities such as sidq being truthful and such as amana being trustworthy and many other qualities that are praiseworthy qualities. They even had many remnants of the, of the deen of Ibrahim al-Islam and general things which are from, from Nubuwa and from prophethood. They would honor the, the, the guest, they would honor the traveler. So yes, it's true that they were a lowly people in the sense that without revelation they were in darkness. But this does not mean at the same time that they did not have qualities that were praiseworthy qualities and qualities that were ready to receive revelation. Right? And we know that Amana, as we see in some of the narrations, that Amana was sent down upon, upon, upon the hearts before revelation. So my point in mentioning all of this of these qualities of, of the Sahaba, of having Sidr, of being truthful, and of having Amana, of being trustworthy. These were the qualities that allowed them to accept revelation, and to act upon the revelation, and to hold fast to the revelation. And from the greatest of things that allowed this revelation to affect the Sahaba and to guide the Sahaba is the issue of ikhlas which is sincerity because sincerity sincerity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which is your intention behind all of your actions is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it is not for riya to be seen it is not for sum'ah to be heard of to seek a reputation. It is not for rif'ah 
to be raised and nor is it for any of these you know trying to seek your action as a means of nearness to certain people because you will find certain favors with them right so your so your relationships become you know siyasi uh, and and of that nature they have motives behind them no ikhlas is that your action is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is this quality that the sahaba radiyallahu anhum found the hardest and which they strove in this matter to achieve ikhlas because without ikhlas all of your deeds all of your actions all of your striving it it is of vain it is vain it is of no benefit it is of no value and that's why we see from the salaf such as al-fadil ibn iyad rahimahullah ta'ala he said al-amal li ajl an-nas shirkun doing deeds for the sake of the people is shirk wa tarku al-amal li ajl li an-nas riya and to abandon action for the sake of the people is riya is showing off wal ikhlas and ikhlas is an yu'afiyak allah minhuma and sincerity is that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he saves you from both of these things to do actions for the sake of the people and to abandon actions for the sake of the people and so because this is the essence of the religion ikhlas ikhlasu dini lillah it is the essence of the religion we see that the sahaba radiyallahu anhum this is the matter that they strove in the most and because of their truthfulness because of their siddq in this issue this is why allah azawajal he planted them firmly he gave them tawfiq he made them leaders he made them rulers over you know over whomever he made them leaders and rulers it all centers upon this ikhlas and that's why a believer we see likewise in the statement of ibrahim alayhi salam the issue centers around ikhlas because what did he say he said qul inna salati wa nusuki wa mahyaya wa mamati lillahi rabbil alamin say indeed my prayer and my sacrifice and my life and my death of Allah the Lord of the worlds la sharika lah there is none which is a partner to him wa bidhalika umirtu wa ana awwalul muslimin this is what i have been commanded and i am the first of those who are from the muslims from those who submit so this is ibrahim ali salam likewise that ikhlas is the foundation of everything and this is the first thing with which we have been commanded in fact this is what allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded his prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in numerous verses in the quran we see the statement of allah azza wa jal fa'budillaha mukhlisan lahuddin so worship allah making the religion sincerely and purely for him qul inni umirtu 
Say, I have been commanded, I have been commanded that I should worship Allah making the religion sincerely and purely for Him. Say, it is Allah that I worship making my religion purely and sincerely for Him alone. And so this is why the issue of ikhlas, the issue of sincerity, it is the foundation in the acceptance of any action with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As we see that Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, he said, لَا يَنْفَعُ قَوْلٌ وَعَمَلٌ إِلَّا بِنِيَّةٍ No speech and no action will benefit except with a niyyah, except with an intention. وَلَا يَنْفَعُ قَوْلٌ وَعَمَلٌ وَنِيَّةٌ إِلَّا بِمَا وَافَقَ السُنَّةِ And no speech and no action and no niyyah will benefit except when it agrees with the sunnah. And so this matter of ikhlas is from the greatest of affairs, which I said is very difficult to achieve. And this is why you see many statements. We will mention some from the, from, from, from the early salaf. But also we find statements, for example, from Ibn al-Jawzi, who said that he said, مَا أَقَلُّ مَنْ يَعْمَلُ مَنْ يَعْمَلُ لِلَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ خَالِسًا How few are those who act for Allah the Exalted خَالِسًا Sincerely, purely لِأَنَّ أَكْثَرَ النَّاسِ يُحِبُّونَ ظُهُورَ عِبَادَاتِهِمْ So this is because most of the people, most of mankind, most people, they love that their acts of worship that they become known and become apparent to the people. And when we say acts of worship, we don't mean just the prayer or just the fasting, because ibadah is a comprehensive term that refers to everything which Allah is pleased with and which He loves. So this riya and this showing off and seeking to be known, this applies to everything, applies to everything. And that's why you see in the hadith of the men that will be judged first, on Yawmul Qiyamah, you know, a man who basically uh, he gave charity, or a man he recited the Quran, or a man he taught knowledge, and all of these individuals they did it so that it might be said, what a scholar, what a reciter, what a generous man. And so this applies to all of the affairs or all of the actions of worship. Ibn Rajab, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Ar-riya al-mahd la yakadu yasdur min mu'minin fi fardhi salati wassiyam. He said, pure riya, pure showing off. It is very rarely or hardly likely to occur from a believer in the obligations of prayer and in fasting. Right? A genuine believer. It's not possible for there to be found in the, a believer in the prayer and in the siyam. This is why it only happens you know, from, from the hypocrites. The hypocrites are the ones who when they stand in the prayer, they stand to be seen of men. Right? They show off, they want to show the people that we are praying with you. And you know, in these major acts of worship. This is not possible, Ibn Rajab says, for it to come from a believer. 
A believer is free of this type of, you know, seeking this type of uh, recognition. However, he says, وَقَدْ فِي الصَّدَقَةِ الْوَاجِبَةِ وَغَيْرِهِمَا مِنَ الْأَعْمَالِ However, he says, it may happen in obligatory charity or in hajj or other such actions, outward actions, where the action benefits somebody else, right? So where the action goes beyond you, the prayer is, is for you. That's just for you. And there are many other actions that they don't really go beyond you for the benefit of anybody else. But when there are actions which involve other people and benefit other people, this is where this showing off and this riya and this type of uh, minor shirk, it can, you know, can, can enter into these types of affairs. And that's why Ibn Rajab says, For indeed, achieving ikhlas, sincerity in these types of actions is aziz. It is mighty, it, it, it is hard. And he says, No Muslim doubts that the likes of this type of action which involves riya, it is vain and it is futile. And that the person who falls into this, he deserves to be hated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? He deserves to, to have the hate of Allah upon this individual. That he, something which is from the mighty affairs of worship, by which only Allah should be uh, sought and his face should be sought, you are seeking the pleasure of the people. How lowly and how demeaning is that? And that deserves, you know, for, 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 the, for, the, for, the, for the maqt, for the hatred of Allah to be upon that person. And likewise, al-uqub, likewise punishment. And so therefore we see all of the ulama, the scholars, we see Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, Rahimahullah, in his Sahih. We see um, in Umdatul Ahkam, Wal-Maqdisi, Rahimahullah, right, the book on Fiqh. And likewise we see in many other, many other books, Al-Baghawi, Rahimahullah, in Sharh, Sharh Sunnah, a book on, on Creed, and you know, An-Nawawi in 40 Hadith, all of them and many other scholars, which Hadith do they begin with first? Indeed, the deeds are judged or are in accordance with the intentions behind them. So we see that the ulama, the scholars of the Muslims, they recognize the greatness of this fair. And that's why, as I mentioned, from the Salaf, Sufyan al-Thawri, rahimahullah, what did he say? He said, مَا عَالَجْتُ شَيْئًا أَشَدَّ عَلِيَّ he said, I have not treated anything that is more severe upon me than my intention. Right? I have not treated anything more severe and hard upon me than my intention. Because it, it's always uh, changing on me. Right? Meaning the niya is something that's fluid, it's dynamic, it changes according to the circumstances, the environment, your interactions and the thoughts that pass through your mind, it, it's always moving. And to try and treat this intention, to, to keep it in line and make it for the sake of Allah, it is the most difficult thing. 
You see, you have diseases, you have ailments. There are some very difficult diseases and ailments to, to, to treat and to keep track of. But this is something even harder, even, even more difficult, to treat the issue of ikhlas. And we see that the companions used to come to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and ask them about things they would see people doing. So a companion would come and he would say, he would say that there's a man, Ya Rasulullah, do you see that there is a man, Ara'ayta Rajulan? You know, he, he, he uh, goes on an expedition, Gaza goes on an expedition, and he is seeking Yaltamisul Ajr dhikr. What is he seeking? He wants to seek some reward, he wants to take something out from the, from, from the battle, and he wants to be mentioned. Uh, what a brave man, what a great fighter, this and that, you know, and the other. And so, Malahu, what will, what, what will he have? And so the messenger of Allah said, he said, la shay, la shay There is nothing for him. And then the man asked the same question three times. What is for this man? And the messenger said, la shay There is nothing for him. Why? Inna Allah la yaqbalu min al-amali illa ma kana lahu khalisan wa butughiya bihi wajhullah. Indeed, Allah does not accept of action except what is for his sake, fully for his sake, and by which his face is sought. So this is something that the companions, they knew, and they asked the Messenger of Allah about these affairs, and the Messenger warned them about these affairs, as per the hadith that we mentioned, about the three men that will be judged, brought in front of the, you know, they will be judged, and so, in light of that, I want to remind myself first and foremost about the importance of this topic and that this is the greatest affair a Muslim should be concerned with. That the, at the head of everything, every day you pass through, you are distracted you know, by your preoccupations and even when you are doing the ibadat, there's always a risk that they turn into as if they are adat. They are habitual things that you do. And we forget the, the essence that is behind these actions of ikhlas, of, of sincerity, and of seeking the face of Allah. And so for that reason, this is why the Salaf recognized that the, 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 the niyyah and the ikhlas is the most difficult thing to achieve. And so for that reason, as advice to myself first and foremost, I want to mention just maybe a few things uh, advices or ways in which we can help ourselves to achieve ikhlas uh, through the aid and through the assistance and we can never we can never claim that we've achieved ikhlas this is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and anyone who thinks he's reached ikhlas as some of the salaf said anyone who thinks he has reached ikhlas then his ikhlas is itself in need of ikhlas right? if you've come to the conclusion or come to the belief that somehow you are being sincere, and that you are sincere, then your sincerity is itself in need of sincerity. This is an actual statement of, of one of the Salaf. And so ikhlas, we can never make that claim. We can never make that claim of having been sincere because that's in essence saying that Allah has in fact accepted an action of, of ours 
and you know that somehow we we have uh, come with come to Allah with the taqwa. We can't we can't make those types of claims, and so from the things that will aid us, inshallah ta'ala, first of all is a dua, making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for ikhlas. We see that Umar bin al-Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, he used to say, Allahumma jal amali kullahu salihan waj'alhu liwajhika khalisan wala taj'al li ahadin fihi shay'a. Would always make this dua. Oh Allah, make my action, all of it, to be righteous. And make it to be for your face alone, purely and sincere. And do not give anyone else a share in it. Right? This is Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Right? Fearing for himself that his action might be for someone other than Allah. In fact, even Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. In the hadith in which the Messenger of Allah he said that shirk in this ummah is more hidden than a you know like, like a, an ant, a black ant on, on, on a dark night, on a, on a black stone. And so Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu he said, you know, what can I do? What can I do to save myself from this? You know, from this, from this money shirk. Abu Bakr didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, 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 the friend of the Prophet Sallallahu and I'm the one with the greatest iman. I don't need to worry about, you know, money shirk. He didn't think like that. He said, how can I save myself from, from this thing that you've described? Who is going to be saved from the likes of this which you have described? And the Messenger of Allah taught him a supplication by which to protect himself from you know, the larger part of it, the smaller part of it, the hidden part of it, the apparent part of it, meaning of this, of this manishirah. And he said, say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min an ushrika bika wa ana a'lam wa astaghfiruka lima la a'lam. He said, oh Allah, I seek forgiveness from you, from that I should commit shirk with you whilst I have knowledge to knowingly fall into ar-riya and the things that enter into my shirk. And I seek forgiveness for you for that which I do not know. Meaning that it is possible for a believer to fall into affairs which comprise my shirk without him even knowing. And so Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, we've already mentioned to you Umar bin al-Khattab, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, this is his way. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, what did he say about you know, falling into omens and superstition? وَمَا مِنَّا إِلَّا يَعْنِي There's none amongst us except that he starts harboring omens. وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يُذْحِبُهُ بِالتَّوَقْلِ But Allah removes it by tawakkul. Meaning when you, when you uh, make tawakkul upon Allah and ignore your thoughts, then Allah will remove it. But no one is free from having the thoughts, right? Of being, having the thoughts of, of you know, 
thinking certain things which which amount to believing in omens and you know having superstition and thinking thoughts you know uh, fearing things that you shouldn't really fear we are we are we are all prone to this but allah removes it by way of tawakkul this is the companions so no one can come now and feel you know in the 20 21st century and somehow act as if you know i've read kitab al-tawheed i even teach kitab al-tawheed how can i fall into minor shirk how can i no one no one no one thinks like this except one who is deceived if Ibrahim السلام, can make the dua as we see in the Quran, <coughs> Oh my Lord, you know, protect me and my, and my children from and الأسنام, from that we worship idols. This is Ibrahim السلام, fearful and seeking protection from Allah, from that he should worship idols, idols against whom which he, you know, he. he uh, opposed his, his father and his people and on account of which enmity occurred before them. How could you envisage that Ibrahim Islam is going to fall into the likes of that? But he's making dua fearful for himself and for his family. So if this is Ibrahim Islam making this dua to be saved from idol idolatry, worshipping actual idols, let alone minus shirk, then no one can feel secure from the lights of these affairs. And so we have the first thing then, this is the way of the prophets, it's the way of the messengers, it's the way of the Sahaba, to seek protection from Allah, from that they fall into Arriya, fall into shirk, the minor shirk in, in its various forms and manifestations. The second way, the second way, so this is the first thing we make this dua, or these supplications, the second way is to conceal to conceal one's actions and not to publicize one's actions and that which is legislated that which the messenger has specifically legislated in the in his sunnah is that we hide and conceal the actions why because this this is a sign of ikhlas it's a sign of sincerity and it, it, it makes the action more worthy of being accepted and a believer who is truthful and sincere, he has siddq and he's sincere, he loves that, he, that his deeds are concealed. Uh, just like he loves that his sins are concealed. Right? And in fact, some of the sort of said that, you know, that just as you love your sins to be concealed, then likewise you should be with your righteous deeds being concealed. And if, that is, if, if they're the same, then you know, this is a sign of, of ikhlas. And... The Messenger of Allah he mentioned uh, in the hadith of the seven whom Allah will shade on the day of judgment. He said, Amongst them is a man, Warajulun, a Saddaqa bi Saddaqatin fa'akhfaha, hatta la ta'lama shimanuhu ma tunfiqu yaminuhu. That there is amongst these people is a man who would give charity and he would, you know, he would hide and conceal that charity until. His right hand did, or his left hand did not know what his right hand was giving, right? Because he's not remembering what he's doing, who's giving to whatever. He just gives freely, not concerned about anyone, anything, and he doesn't know what what he's, you know, what what he's uh, spending. Likewise, Bishr bin al-Harif, he said, Rahimullah, it's related from him that he said, لا تعمل لتذكر. Do not 
do deeds in order that you may be mentioned. And he said, Conceal and hide the good deed just like you conceal and hide the evil deed. Right? So this is the second way. Make it a point, we should all make it a point to conceal whatever deeds we, we, we you know, are doing, uh, that we believe we are doing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while struggling to maintain your class, conceal the deeds. The third point, or the third advice, is to always look at the actions of the righteous people who are above you and greater than you. And, you know, don't look at the people of your time, but look at the people, because you will find many, many people who are, who are less than you. Because as time goes on, we know that you know, the affairs become more and more evil and righteous people are less. So if you judge yourself in light of the people around you or the society around you, then there is, you know, you are likely to be, think yourself to be, well, I'm, I'm better than most people, at least I'm praying, I'm fasting, or I'm, I'm right. Don't judge yourself like this, because then you are opening the door for this, for this ijab and for this, you know, uh, this uh, amazement with yourself, and as, as if you are saved just because everybody else is not at the same level. But rather, look at those who came before you, the prophets, the messengers, the righteous, they are the ones through whom you should be judging yourself. And as Allah says in the Quran, after mentioning many of the prophets and messengers, they are the ones whom Allah has guided. So by their guidance, then guide yourself. So that's why we read the biography of the messenger of Allah We read the biography, biographies of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. We read the biographies of, of the Salaf so that we can see that this is the standard that we aspire to and how we can never really reach. We can never reach that, that level. And this keeps us humble, modest, sincere, and always striving to be, to be better. As for when you judge yourself by, by the people of, the, of, of this zaman, of this time, then it's very easy to, to somehow uh, have aman, to feel aman, min makrillah, from the, you know, uh, if, do, do they feel secure from the plot of Allah? The moment you start feeling secure and content with yourself, this is when you are destroyed. So, um, this is the third uh, point. The fourth point is to always belittle your action, to make ihtiqab of your action, to belittle your own action. And you know, when you see that you are somehow being pleased, mashallah, I did this and I gave this charity and I did this and I studied this book and I, I did this and you start feeling pleased with yourself, this now is, is, is an afa. This now is a calamity. And, you know, whenever you start looking at yourself with the, with the ayn of rida, with the eye of pleasure, then you are really destroying yourself. You're harming yourself. With the ayn, with the eye, you look at yourself with the ayn of rida and ajab, you know, being amazed with yourself and, and you know, uh, pleased with yourself. And so, this is, is a sign of rejection of the action. 
Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala he says wa'alamatu qubul al-amal a sign of the action of an uh, a sign of the acceptance of an action ihtiqaruhu wa istiqlaluhu is that you you belittle it and you consider it to be to be nothing and something very little very small and wasighruhu fi qalbik and in your heart is something very small and insignificant and hatta inna al-'arif la yastaghfirullaha until even the one who is who is knowledgeable, the arif, the one who knows the realities of the affairs, he seeks Allah's forgiveness immediately after his action. So even when he's done what is a righteous action, seeing his own deficiency and, and belittling the action, he then seeks forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after having done the action. Not feeling pleased with himself and feeling as if you know, he's done uh, a favor to Allah and Allah has to reward him and Allah has accepted that. No. He now seeks forgiveness from Allah not knowing whether he has fulfilled his duty and whether his action is acceptable to Allah. And that's why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, as Ibn al-Qaim says, وَقَدْ كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وسلم, إِذَا سَلَّمَ مِنَ الصَّلَاةِ إِسْتَغْفِرَ اللَّهِ إِسْتَغْفِرَ اللَّهِ ثَلَاثًا this is why the Messenger of Allah, whenever he used to finish from the prayer, he just finished the prayer, he would then seek forgiveness from Allah three times. Right? So making istighfar after completing the prayer, because he has belittled the action, not knowing whether it is going to be acceptable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not. So this is the fourth thing that we should do, the righteous actions that we see. Do not think that this is something great or something which has been acceptable to Allah. And No. Consider it to be as if it is zero, as if it is nothing on your scrolls. Right? Which will make you inclined to work even harder and to be fearful. This leads us to the next point. The next uh, way that we can increase our ikhlas or to aid us on the path of ikhlas which is to fear the action will not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To fear that our actions will not be accepted by Allah. To have this constant fear. To repeat this verse to yourself. Allah only accepts from the muttaqeen. Are you from the muttaqeen? Are you truly from the muttaqeen? Right? And so every righteous action that we do as we said in the previous point you belittle it and you are fearful that it is not going to be accepted and there's a verse in the Quran in which Allah he gives the similitude of a woman you know gives the example of a woman who spins the, the yarn Right, who spins takes a long time spinning the yarn, and then after all of that, it all basically you know goes to waste. So do not be like that. Do not be like that. Someone who is you know um, building up what he thinks to be actions, he thinks they are going to be accepted, but because of of of, of you know neglecting the issue of ikhlas, they all end up being worth nothing, and. We see that the companions, the verse in the Quran in Surah uh, Sajda, uh, 
in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, وَالَّذِينَ يُؤْتُونَ مَا آتَوْا وَقُلُوبُهُمْ وَجِلَةٌ أَنَّهُمْ إِلَىٰ رَبِّهِمْ رَاجِعُونَ It's not in Surah Sada, it's in, sorry, it's in another, 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 another Surah. Those who give what they give while their hearts are in fear, wajila, like they, they, they tremble and they are in fear, that they will be returning to their Lord. And Aisha radiallahu anha, she asked the Messenger of Allah about this ayah. Who is this verse actually referring to? Right, who is this verse referring to? Is it referring to the one who steals and the one who fornicates and the one who drinks khamar, the one who drinks alcohol? Right, so he's committing all of these evil deeds and then you know he's giving in charity, fearing, fearing Allah for the for the sins that he's committed. Is it this one? And so the Messenger of Allah he said, La ya binta Abi Bakr and Siddiq. No, O daughter of Abu Bakr as Siddiq. No, O daughter of Siddiq. They are those who pray and they fast and they give charity and they are fearful that these actions will not be accepted from them. Right? So as they are doing the action, there's fear that this action Allah will not accept it. And likewise, um, you know, the, 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 we, we have Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah likewise he said that these people are the ones who they give something and they are fearful and they are in, you know, they are in great fear that this will not be accepted from them because of their fear that maybe they have fallen short, maybe in, you know, something they've neglected or one of the conditions of, of, of giving or whatever. They feel that something is not right in their deed and defeat will not be accepted. Right, so uh, this is part and parcel of your class. The next point is to help us in, in ikhlas is not to be affected by the speech of the people. Not to be affected by what people say. And, you know, a man who is given success in this issue, he cares not what the people say. You know, if they praise him, it's not going to increase him in anything, right? It doesn't change anything with him. If, he, if they praise him for something that he did, it's not going to affect him. Rather, it is going to increase him in his humility to Allah. He finds someone, you know, says something good about him, and he thinks to himself, you know, astaghfirullah, this is, you know, and, and it only increases him in humility. Tawadu' and khashya, humility to Allah, and, and fear of, you know, fear of Allah. And he has absolute certainty that this praise or things that he hears the people saying, that this is actually a fitna. It's, it's a trial and a tribulation, so on his own, in the private, he makes dua to Allah, and he asks Allah to save him and protect him from this fitna, from you know, what people are saying about him, you know, that he doesn't enter into his heart, and he doesn't become deceived by it, and he doesn't, that he makes dua to Allah. So he should know that no one, the praise of no one, and the rebuke and the criticism of no one, is actually going to 
benefit or harm him except that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? The only one whose, ben- whose praise and the one whose rebuke is, holds anything of actual benefit and harm upon you is that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So therefore, uh, as, as this, this point number six, we should basically treat the people as if they are people in the graves, right? So treat everybody and what they say as if they are just dead and buried in the graves. Meaning, it will make no difference to you what they say. It doesn't affect you one bit. And this is how you should treat the people in terms of benefiting you or harming you in terms of what they say. You know, so uh, we have a statement from Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, and he said, um, you know, tarkun nadar, to abandon looking at the creation and you know uh, removing or erasing like you know any kind of uh, status or position or honor uh, you know seeking that in their hearts through action and and making your qasd meaning your motive to be pure uh, and you know concealing one's you know what one's condition it is these things that lead to the raising of whomever is raised right it is Allah who raises it is Allah who raises not the people and so you've got to remove from your heart seeking any kind of like status position honor in the hearts of the people and concealing yourself and doing all these other things that we mentioned that is the one whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he is the one who will basically, you know, he will, he will raise uh, people. And also, the seventh point is to know for sure that the people are not able to, you know, enter you into paradise, not into hellfire. And so therefore trying to uh, please them or impress them or seek their recognition or seek their praise or whatever it might be, whatever motives, they are not going to enter you into hellfire, nor are they going to enter you into, you know, uh, paradise. They have absolutely no control over these affairs. So how, with this knowledge, how ridiculous does it become that you act for the sake of the people, right? You act to be seen, you act to be heard of. It doesn't make any sense. And so, uh, you know, this shows that the people are completely helpless and unable uh, to help you uh, in any form or fashion. We have the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and you know he said Man illahu bihi. Right? So the one who seeks a reputation and seeks to be spoken of by the people, that people say good things, then Allah will make him to be heard of. Meaning that Allah will like, basically lower him, humiliate him, expose him, and then will make him someone who the people will hear of. The opposite of what he intended. And he said, وَمَنْ يُرَائِي اللَّهُ بِهِ And the one who seeks to be seen, the one who seeks to be seen by the people, then Allah will make him is like, like a spectacle. Allah will make him to be seen, right? Meaning the opposite of what he what he intended. 
And so this shows that the people have no ability uh, to enter you into paradise or hellfire. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is in control of everything. And finally, the final point that we should remember is that you are going to be in the grave. This is point number eight. You are going to be in the grave by yourself. When you die, and you will be buried feet under the ground, no one else, the creation is not coming with you to see your deeds that you did, the charity that you gave, the knowledge that you learned, the Quran that you recited, the striving in the path of life. There's going to be no one with you to see your deeds. You will be by yourself. And so this will show the futility of Riyā and Sum'a and all these other things, things that people do, you know, the actions are, are for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of this will be of no benefit uh, whatsoever. So this shows that the affair is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, as Ibn al-Qayyim, he said that, you know, that a person should be truthful in meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the way that the servant achieves uh, istiqama. And so if he prepares for the meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then his heart will benefit. His heart will benefit. And all the affairs in the world that, that, that basically he seeks, and you know, he will, be, he will be protected from all of that if he is seeking Allah, if he's seeking the face of Allah and the meeting with Allah. If what you put in front of you is meeting Allah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, then everything else, all of the maqalib and all of the other things in the dunya, your heart will be protected and saved from them. And so this is really the eighth point. Remember to remind yourself all the time that when you are going to die and you're going to be in the grave, the creation is not coming with you. The creation is not coming with you. They're coming to your grave and then they're walking away. Right? And you will be by yourself. And so the only thing that will benefit you then is your ikhlas, your siddh, your truthfulness, your sincerity, and any actions that, that are built upon that. So this is what I wanted to really uh, cover following on from what uh, Khadija mentioned uh, about you know, the companions and how they were uh, upon, uh, you know, upon misguidance and splitting and enmity and hatred. And so when the revelation came, they were guided, they were turned into brothers, and they were united. And all of this did not happen except because they had sidr, they were truthful, and they had amana, they were trustworthy. And because they saw the weightiness of the message, and that its foundation is ikhlas. And ikhlas is the foundation of the religion, and this is why they were given the success, the tawfiq, and the, the, the establishment upon the ard, and all of the other things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to them. And so this is something I wanted to uh, remind myself with first and foremost, and perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will uh, aid us and support us by way of this. Uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us tawfiq, and to uh, protect our, our souls, and to grant us ikhlas, and to grant us sabat, 
upon his path. Wallahu a'lam. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'i. Uh, that you ask Allah So I seek refuge in you, I seek refuge in you from that I should from that I should commit shirk knowingly whilst I have knowledge. And I seek forgiveness for you, Astaghfiruka, Lima la a'lam. And I seek forgiveness for you from that which I do not know. So that means that it is possible for a believer to knowingly commit uh, shirk, minor shirk. Like for example, a person, he knows he's giving charity and he makes, makes a display of it. He knows what he's doing. He knows he's doing it, you know, uh, seeking to be, to be seen. And, and so he knows what he's doing here. But there's also a category where, you know, you, you may not know you've fallen into, into mani shirk. You know, you may be, you've made a statement you don't realize, right? So like, you know, some, sometimes we know in the hadith, a man came and he said, whatever Allah willed and whatever you willed. And then the messenger said, have you made me a nid with Allah? Have you made me a rival with Allah? Right? Had the messenger not corrected him, he would not have known that this is mani shirk. So it shows that sometimes we can make a statement or maybe we can have feel a feeling or something that could enter into mani shirk, but we are not actually aware of it. So we we so so there's two things. One is knowingly committing mani shirk, and one is unknowingly falling into something, and for that we seek Allah's forgiveness. And Allah will, forgive, Allah will forgive us those types of issues because we are not held accountable for things that we do not know and that we are not aware of. And for things whose ruling we may, be, we may not actually be, be, be aware of. So this is a tremendous dua from the, the, the messenger of Allah taught to Abu Bakr. And that shows that no one has a right at any time to feel as if he, you know, uh, his tawheed is so strong that he he's free from falling into minor shirk. No, no one thinks like that. A believer, a muwahid, does not think like that. Uh, word abd uh, and ibadat, do they have any uh, uh, connection? Yes, of course. The word abd yeah. and the word ibadah, they are from the same root in the Arabic. Abd and ibadah and abd. Uh, means a slave, a slave, ibadah, is to worship, and ubudiyah is servitude, to be, to be in servitude to someone. Right? So, so, abd is the servant who worships Allah, he is a slave of Allah, and ibadah is the actions he does by which he is a slave to Allah and by which he is worshipping Allah. So ibadah is prayer, fasting, charity, righteousness to parents, and all the other deeds, the obligations 
Like when a person does this, he is he is doing ibadah which makes him an abd. Right? And everything Allah has commanded and everything that Allah is pleased with and everything Allah loves, all of this enters into ibadah. Right? Ibadah is munjami'un. Ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from the inward actions and the outward actions and the, and the statements. Right? So ibadah means everything Allah has commanded, which is pleased with and which, which he loves. So an abd is the one who performs this ibadah for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And by way of that, he is in a state of ubudiyah. Ubudiyah is servitude. Right? So we are slaves of Allah. We do ibadah and we are in ubudiyah. Yes? However, the Christian, for example, the Christian, right? He's a slave of Allah in the sense that Allah created him. Right? In fact, all of Allah's creation, they are slaves. All of Allah's, uh, you know, they, they are slaves of Allah in the sense of the creational sense. Right? They cannot escape Allah's laws in the creation. But are they really slaves of Allah in terms of ibadah? No. no because they are worshipping the cross. And they are worshipping Isa alayhi salam. And they are worshipping his mother Maryam alayhi salam. Right? So they are not in ubudiyah to Allah. They are in ubudiyah to other than Allah. And the same with the polytheists, the mushrikun, and the same with the yahud and other than them. Right? So to be an abd is to worship only Allah and to be a slave only to Allah. That's abd. And ibadah is obviously worship of Allah by which we, by which we, you know, by which we become slaves of, of Allah and we reach the station of ubudiyah. Okay, someone uh, had a slip of the tongue. I accidentally said that you should uh, seek forgiveness uh, for Allah instead of from Allah. So when I, uh, you know, after one slip of the tongue, astaghfirullah. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika minan ushrika bika wa ana a'lam wa astaghfiruka lima la a'lam. So I think, was it that hadith that I translated? Yeah. So Allah, I, 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 um, I seek refuge in you. From that I should that I should commit shirk whilst I have knowledge, and I seek forgiveness from you for that uh, for that which I do not have knowledge of. So it's a slip of the tongue. This is a question. Uh, to do with uh, medicine, what is the ruling on homeopathy? Homeopathy. A lot of sisters in our community practice it. Is there any evidence for it? Okay, so the answer to this question would be would be along the following lines. First of all, what Allah has created, 
of, of the body and also of life or biological life is very complicated and has many different aspects and many layers. Right? What Allah has created of biological life, it's very complex, there are many layers and the many aspects. And the creation over many, many centuries or many thousands of years, they have tried to look at the body and often they theorize and they try to gain a working knowledge of how they think the body is functioning. And on top of that, they then have medical systems. Right? And so mankind has differed tremendously in these types of issues. And the body itself, there are there's different elements to the body. There are chemical reactions, chemical pathways, biochemical pathways. And this is what modern medicine largely looks at, the modern medicine of the 20th century, which is really the allopathic medicine. It is the Rockefeller medicine right, of synthetic drugs. And, you know, it's, it, it's on the basis of, of, you know, it's all um, uh, premised upon uh, war and attack and you know so we have like anti this anti that antiviral antifungal antibiotic anti this whatever and it's it has a certain model that has a lot of uh, theory uh, behind it and this is the predominant uh, model of medicine it wasn't always like this before the 20th century before the 20th century most medicine uh, in Europe was actually homeopathic Right? In the continent, in Germany, other places, most medicine was actually homeopathic, it was naturopathic, uh, it was built upon certain understanding that the body is a complete and perfect system that is self-regulating, self-healing, uh, self-coordinating, and any illnesses that arise, they are because of violations in diet and conduct and behavior and exposure Right, and the body then reacts, trying to correct its course, and in that process, the body has symptoms. Right, the symptoms are not the disease. The, the symptoms are a sign of the body undergoing a, a, a correction mechanism. So the understanding of all medicine prior to the 20th century is that we basically try to aid and support the body in doing what it is trying to do and not to fight against the body to suppress what it is trying to do. That's what all of medicine pretty much used to be for, 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 you know, for in, in all civilizations and, and in all, all of history. And homeopathy was a major form of medicine prior to the Rockefeller takeover and monopolization and corporatization of medicine in the 20th century. Now, how does homeopathy work? Well, remember I said to you at the beginning that there are different aspects of looking at the body, right? And one way is to look purely chemical reactions. Chemical reactions, biochemical pathways, right? And you look at, okay, where can we intervene to inhibit a certain chemical reaction, 
right, in order to inhibit the symptoms, right? This is this is Rockefeller medicine. This is 20th century corporatized, you know, medicine, right? How can we uh, intervene in biochemical reactions and to create drugs, right, and patent those drugs? This is patent, patentable medicine of the 20th century. But this is this is only a very narrow-minded view of, of the body because the body is much more than just biochemical reactions, right? So, so this type of medicine is very reductionist it reduces it down to like one narrow element it is very materialistic and it ignores many other things right so the other things that make up the body for example um, in the body everything actually every organ actually has frequencies and vibrations right and they are detectable and known the brain has frequencies vibrations your organs your liver everything is, has an actual frequency and, and, and a vibration, right? So this is an actual aspect of the body, the heart. There's a lot of electric, there's electric, electricity. Your body runs on electricity, right? And so there's waves, there's frequency. Somehow the body is able to generate power. Haven't you, have you ever thought, how on earth is, like how can a battery Say, for example, for, for a Tesla, for example, right? it needs to be charged all the time and whatever. But how can a man right, lift weights and lift all sorts throughout the whole of the day and not actually feel, feel tired? And all the functions of the body, like, why is, where's the battery in here? Where, where's the energy actually coming from? Where's it actually coming from? Right? And so the modern science, it is missing a great deal as to how the body actually functions because it ignores, at least in practice, many of these other aspects of the body. So, so here, frequency, vibration, you know, and, and the electrical element um, uh, in the body, um, that's one part of it. Even just the water itself. Water itself is, is another uh, neglected topic uh, because there's more to water than what we actually think, right? And water is, as they say, 70-80% of, 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 of the body. And they have like a very simplistic understanding of, of, of water. Likewise, the blood, right? Uh, you know, my, my point being, then there's also the soul as well. There's also the soul. What about the soul in, in health and disease? So all of these things are not really incorporated holistically into medicine. What we see is one group over here focusing on like the biochemical reactions. Another group over there, for example, we see maybe the Chinese, you know, they will have this issue of uh, like the acupuncture is based upon uh, nerve bundles in certain areas that are blocking the flow of the, the electrical flow of the body. So they will focus on those and correct those, um, you know, you know, then, then you have different people who focus upon the actual structure of the body, the skeleton, and how that can lead to illnesses. So the point being, there are so many different ways and means, and no one can say, this is wrong and this is right. Because this all goes back down to experience and what people have found to be, to be beneficial through, through empirical means, meaning through actual empirical uh, experience. So no one can say 
oh, this is this is snake oil medicine and this is real medicine and this is you can't really you can't really you can't really say that because if you wanted to go down that route and you wanted to follow you know if you wanted to use modern medicine as the basis then you would have to say you would have to deny the prophetic medicine you would have to you would have to deny hijama as being quackery right you would have to deny many of the authentic narrations of the messenger of allah sallam that, that have come which contain cures for certain things right you you have to deny them and dismiss them why oh well because we don't have randomized controlled trials we don't have this we don't. Well, you can't you can't speak like that right medicine works on tajriba on actual experience right and you can't deny the experience of people of societies of of nations in their medicine so coming back to the issue of homeopathy the way homeopathy works is on the principle of of it actually comes back down to actual vibrations and uh, uh, putting things into water in terms of the frequency and the vibration of water right so they put you know um, certain things they dilute it and keep diluting it because it's not the actual molecule but what the molecule imparts to the water of frequencies and vibrations which when you consume it then alters the the, the environment in your body right to allow the cells to function in, in in the right you know in the right way so anyhow the point being that there's a particular underlying theory or understanding upon which homeopathy is is actually built and if you if you read go back into the into the 19th century before the takeover of medicine you'll find that the majority of of doctors you know were actually into this type of medicine of of naturopathy and homeopathy and which is you know using using good living good diet as a foundation as a foundation and then using simple methods to facilitate the body's self-healing mechanisms right so as ibn al-qayyim said the prophetic medicine is all about living healthily eating healthily having optimism right all the basic things and if you live that life like bedouins live a simple life then you will only suffer simple diseases which last a very short time and resolve very quickly right and this is the basis of the prophetic medicine right eat little sleep well be active be optimistic eat small in quantity but nutritious like all those other things that that that, that, that we find right try to go hungry right so if you want to live that life then the type of medicine that you will need will correspond to that type of life and that's why as ibn al-qayyim says when you go to the bedouins who are living away from the cosmopolitan societies right they're eating simple foods whatever their illnesses are very simple very short lived they hardly need any treatment but if you go in the cities where every type of food is available and you're eating lots of different foods and things like this then the type of illnesses will correspond to that and you will have complex illnesses right and so this is why today the lifestyle of today 
is, is, is exactly this, right? These are civilizational, sorry, th these are diseases that relate to the way you actually live. And that's why you will see a transition from like the 18th, 19th century, where most of the diseases were basically what we can call the dirt diseases, right? The diseases where you don't have clean water, you don't have good nutrition, you are living in filth, you don't have lavatories, you don't have sewage systems, right? And so the type of illnesses you are getting, you are going to get the poxes, right? You know, where, where basically your body has been poisoned with maybe arsenic or lead or other things and your body's trying to get them out of the body. Right? It's trying to expel them through the quickest route possible, which is through the skin or the lymph nodes or whatever it might be. And you know, all the other diseases, uh, the poxes, you know, the, the scarlet fever and this and that, whatever, right? But as soon as social changes were made in societies, right, all of, all of these diseases basically disappeared. And that's why when you look at the graphs of the early 20th century, where you start when all these social reforms were made in Europe and other places, you know, uh, expanding the, the, the roads so they wider, the sewage systems, water into the house, lavatories, uh, focusing on better nutrition. This is why those so-called alleged infectious diseases, they all basically virtually disappeared, or they became more or less harmless, except to severely compromised, you know, children or people, right? The, the rates just simply disappeared like this. Before vaccination and any, you know, mass vaccination, they just disappeared like that. Which showed that these were diseases of, of society, of the way of living, of, you know, of, of the circumstances. And that's what, that's what eliminated these diseases, right? Do not believe the propaganda of the serum pushes, you know, the vaccine pushes, the pus injectors. All of this is propaganda and it is lies, right? I, I give the example many times. This is like the man who goes to an ocean and as the tide comes in and it's ready to go back out again, he takes his bucket and he basically starts taking the water and throwing it. And then he claims, my bucket is what made the tide go away. Right? The tide's already going out. The tide's going to go out anyway. Right? But he's trying to deceive people, make them think, oh, my bucket, you know, because I was taking the water and whatever, it, uh, I made the tide go back. And that's what the, the propaganda and the lies of, of the vaccine pushes. They claim that they eliminated all of these so-called alleged infectious diseases. This is Kadib, this is propaganda. Right? And many of the doctors now, they are becoming aware that they have been hoodwinked. And they've been lied to right, about this particular issue. Because the propaganda is, is so, so basically uh, great. So, so from that... When there were mostly these types of diseases, we've now moved to another category of diseases, which are metabolic diseases. Right? So we've gone away from the era of the dirt diseases. Why? Because in most nations, most nations, especially in the Western nations, we, you know, we live in clean houses, there is sewage, there's clean water, there's better nutrition. You know, all of these social things that, that have eliminated those illnesses. The only places those illnesses are still present are in undeveloped countries, like, you know, in Africa, India, South, uh, you know, America, where they don't have clean water, right? They don't have sewage systems. That is what, that is the actual reason why you still have those types of diseases in those African countries, right? That's the real reason. It's not because of any virus or any like this or whatever, any germ, whatever. It's because 
They do not have the same uh, social changes that happened in, in Europe. Right? They don't have those changes. Right? And yet we see these people, you know, they, uh, they, they, these so-called philanthropists, you know, they come from the West and they say, well, you know, uh, we want you to uh, accept LGBTQ, uh, you know, or we want you to take these injections, you know. But they will never do anything to actually change the infrastructure. Why don't you give them clean, clean water then? Why don't you take, you know, say, uh, we'll take billions and we'll give this particular African nation, we'll change its entire water structure, we'll give it a water supply, clean water supply, Right? Why do you do that then? Why do you do that? You will see that the diseases will disappear. Why are you doing that? Why are you, why are you saying you know, you, you, you've got to accept LGBTQ? Or you've got to accept our injections and you know, the World Bank will, will give you a loan or the IMF will give you a loan you know, so your people can be, you know, have to pay taxes for decades uh, afterwards just to pay for these, for these drugs that we're giving you or these injections that we're giving you. And, you know, at the same time, these are population reductionists as well at the same time. So the whole thing you can see, it's a bit of a, you know. But as I said, those diseases have largely gone. The new type of disease, the new era of disease is the era of metabolic syndrome. Now, what does this mean? It means that we are eating chemicalized food, industrialized food. Um, you know, this is not real food. It's the big corporations have taken control of food production. Uh, we have pesticides, fertilizers. Uh, we have, um, you know, depletion of the soil. And, and then also we, we, are, we are eating complex. We are eating uh, so many different types of foods in the same meal that people will inevitably develop what we call a metabolic syndrome, right? The, the, the metabolics, the, the, the metabolism is not working that it ought to be because of all of these assaults upon the body. So this is why we have heart disease. We have cancers, right? We have, uh, you know, diabetes, right? The, the, these are failings of the actual, like the, the, the metabolism of the, of, the, of the body, right? This is the era of these types of disease that we're living in. And so if you, if you want to live that type of life, lifestyle, then, to be honest, the only medicine that's going to be applicable to you is the modern medicine. You know, like if, if, you, if, if you're eating chemicalized, industrialized, synthetic foods and pesticides and whatever, and that's poisoning your body, you're going to be prone to infections, what they call infections, right? It means that bacteria in your body, uh, because your tissue is, is compromised and it's dying, then the bacteria are going to come to try and break that tissue down. Right? And sometimes it can be so severe that unless you take antibiotics, you could actually die. Right? So the medicine suits the lifestyle. And the prophetic medicine is all about living a simple, healthy life. And when you have illnesses or ailments, you will only need a very simple treatment. Right? Simple things will work for you and benefit you. You know, honey mixed in a glass of water, right? Ajwa dates in the morning, right? Because your body is maintained in a way that it is receptive to the prophetic medicine. Do you understand? Right? So, so coming back to this issue of homeopathy, then of course, it's, it's, a, it's a medical system. 
Uh, there's nothing unlawful about homeopathy. Yes, they have their underlying theory and their understanding of the body, and there is uh, there is a basis, you know, for 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 what they say. There is some kind of evidence or research for what they say, and so we can't we can't dismiss and start you know looking from the lens of of the allopathic medicine, ridicule these people like what 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 we find you know. Uh, amongst the uh, non-Muslims or people who are taught in the allopathic kind of medicine. No, we don't do that because medicine varies, as Ibn al-Qayyim says, that every nation has its own experience, has its own understanding of medicine, and they take from their environment, you know, medicine from, from, from uh, uh, the animals or from the herbage or from just their, their experience, what they find to be, be effective from their experience. So we can't come along and now, you know, go to some tribe, you know, who's in uh, South America in a jungle somewhere or whatever it might be. And they, they know from the environment what works for them. We can't say to you, you are backward. You know, where's your peer-reviewed, uh, uh, you know, paper? Or where's your randomized control tiles? We can't, you, can't, you, can't, you can't make those stipulations upon these people. This is just arrogance. Right? And this is not a condition for medicine. Medicine is built upon tajriba. Tajriba. It's built upon experience. And that experience can be can be personal. It can be personal. Right? And sometimes it's like medicine is like the layers of an onion. Imagine medicine and what's happening in the body is like the layers of an onion. Right? And I'll give you one example of, of an illness, right? There used to be an illness called uh, pellagra it's a disease called pellagra and uh, this disease uh, was thought to be an infectious disease because there were certain symptoms a skin rash, right, dermatitis diarrhea, you get diarrhea there would be dementia right, and you know, uh, people would obviously die as well, right so, now if you come and look at this disease from the angle of the some infectious agent moving around and whatever, then what you're going to do is you are going to develop a drug or something powerful, you know, antibiotic, and then give that to the people. And if you imagine the layers of an onion, your point of intervention is like towards the surface level of the onion, right? Because you are really coming to the to the... Uh, like last stages or the last uh, uh, stage of, of where the symptoms are manifesting, right? But with Pellagra, what was discovered, which is now known and established, is that this was simply a deficiency of a B vitamin. That's all it was, right? It was simply a, a deficiency of a B vitamin, Right? So that's, that's the asal, this is like the inner layer of the onion, right? The inner layer of the onion. So all you had to do is give this village or this population, give them high dosage, that, that particular B vitamin, and very shortly the illness will resolve and it will disappear, and that will be the end of it. And the reason why they got that illness is because in their diet, the type of food they were eating, they were chronically deficient with, with you know, with, uh, you know, with, uh, of, of, of that uh, particular vitamin, right? So medicine or, or, or the body, it's like the layers of an onion, 
right? And different theories, different understandings of medicine, they will have their particular intervention point, right? And the more insightful the medicine, then the closer to the center of the onion will be the intervention point. And that's why you have different doctors, and that's why you'll see different doctors. One doctor will come along and he'll see some guy with some thought of like, you know, infection, whatever. He'll say like, drop him with antibiotics. So he'll be given the antibiotics. It'll kill off the bacteria that were trying to do something meaningful. It won't solve the underlying problem, but it will remove the, the apparent symptoms, right? The problem is still there in his body. And maybe it will come and surface in some other form later on down the line. You'll have another doctor and he'll say, well, okay, it seems to me that you have a deficiency. He'll give him you know, a, a supplement to take, whatever, and that disease will be gone and it'll never return again. Right? This is in the experience of, of, of people. So my point being that we can't, like this question is about homeopathy, and we can't, you know, we can't look through the lens of modern allopathic medicine and just dismiss everything uh, because then you'd have to take the same approach towards the sunnah of the messenger of Allah. You'd have to do that, right? You'd have to dismiss it as, as quackery or something. And, and this, is, this is not correct and this is not true. So the ruling on homeopathy, it is just another system of medicine. Uh, also, what I want to mention as well is sometimes you have systems of medicine which observationally they might be true but that particular civilization has added a layer of philosophy or belief that then confuses it a little bit right even though the thing from a purely physical point of view it's actually true right so that's why you see like in Chinese medicine or whatever medicine right like when they speak about the, the, the acupuncture and the nerve issues, that's actually true, right? There is electrical energy flowing through your body and there can be like localized blockages. But then they might add some like philosophy or something on top of that, right? Yin and yang and this and that, whatever, right? So, so here we have to eliminate the philosophy, but the physical workings, there is truth in that. Do you understand? Right? So, so but here, homeopathy... As far as I can see, it doesn't contain any of these kind of like, you know, uh, beliefs or philosophies. It's an understanding of how the body uh, and the water in the body, uh, how it operates and how it functions. And, you know, you can take certain molecules that have certain frequencies and vibrations. You can put them in water, dilute all over again. And that water now has some record, has some um, frequencies and vibrations, which then when you drink it, that then expands and goes to other places and it alters the environment, right? And that's how the, the healing or the cure basically it happens. And so we can't, we can't dismiss that and say that's, that's not true. Uh, you know, this is, this is what medicine used to be and it was used to, to great effect. And even today, many people, they, 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 they use it very effectively. So that's, that's what we can say on this particular question and Allah knows best. Those who live in remote areas, Amazon, you know, rainforest, jungles, you know, how they judged with Allah, uh, they have no access to the outside world. Well, they, 
if they have not heard this is the basic principle we do not punish until after we have sent a messenger so if the messenger has not come and they haven't received a message then they won't be you know um, they, 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 they will be given an opportunity in the hereafter they will be given a test on Yom Al-Qiyamah right? the people who the message never reached them that will be their test on Yom Al-Qiyamah so that's in short, you know, this is how, how we view such people. Um, if they haven't had the message and haven't had the hujjah, and they die upon what they die upon, uh, some of those people might die upon knowing through their fitrah that there is a Lord and that there's a resurrection and that they should do righteous actions. Right? There can be people like that in the time, in, in the, the, the fatra, meaning the period between the messengers. That they believe there's a Lord, they know there's a hereafter, and they do righteous actions. Right? And they could be saved by virtue of that, because that is intact fitrah. That is, you know, uh, submission to Allah, doing righteous deeds, believing in resurrection, the basic elements. But, you know, for those people who may be upon, upon shirk and dalal, and, you know, and they've had no access to the book, heard the message of Islam, they are like the question said, they are in a, in a rainforest, whatever, then they will be given their trial on Yawmul Qiyamah, you know, to obey Allah or to disobey Allah, and then that will be their, that will be a trial in the, in the hereafter. Inshallah, we'll try to close with just one, uh, one more question, Inshallah. Okay, there's a question here about what is the, what's the best actions a child can do for the deceased parent. Uh, the actions that one can do for the parents is to make dua for them, to supplicate to Allah for their forgiveness and to show mercy upon them. So always make dua for them. And uh, from those things that benefit a person after, after their death is a righteous child. Right? A righteous child who makes dua for them, as we find in the hadith about the deeds of a, of a person coming to an end, except except for three. This is the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that he can give charity on their behalf. You can give charity on their behalf, you can feed the poor on their behalf, you can uh, do deeds of you know, building things that, or doing things that, that are sadaqah jariyah, planting a tree, you know, uh, printing a book, disseminating knowledge, and intending by way of that as a salakajari for your parent. Uh, so you can, you, know, you, can, you can do that. And some of the scholars like Sheikh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, there is a difference of view amongst the scholars as to which deeds can you do and you know, uh, offer them for the benefit of, of, of the parent. And there are different views, and Sheikh Al-Islam Taymiyyah, he does explain uh, that um, you know, th- there is a view that you can do any deed and offer it to your deceased parents, and in fact, some of them, some of them even held that you can give it to to any other person, right? So there, there are views that, that are present, uh, but you know uh, that which has come in the Sunnah, there is a specific mention of certain actions such as fasting and giving charity and doing Umrah and those kind of things. So inshallah, you can, you, can, you can do those things uh, for your parents 
from making dua and from some of these actions that we uh, that we mentioned, inshallah ta'ala. Okay, I think we'll we'll close there, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan for your attendance. And uh, inshallah ta'ala, hopefully there's uh, another gathering on Friday in Manchester, inshallah, and likewise on Saturday in Stoke. So... We thank Allah for all of these uh, uh, gatherings. He's given us tawfiq to, to gather together in the masajid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, a great reward for traveling and seeking ilm. So inshallah, I remind you uh, to try and attend also these uh, gatherings with your families. And with that, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.